The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I finally got the set of instructions for mindfulness of breathing up on our website. We've been, for those who are new, we've been working with this particular set of meditation instructions the last six weeks or so from this very famous discourse called the Mindfulness of the In and Out Breath. And it's a set of 16 instructions that are very comprehensive and pithy, very simple. So what's up on the website, if you go to our website, KamaGramMeditation.org, one of the top menu items, I think it's called Teachings. If you click on that, one of the sub um, web pages underneath the teachings is called Resources. And there, under the resources, one of them is a link to this document that has, it's called Mindfulness of Breathing or something like that. It has the 16 instructions that the Buddha gave. And then behind that, are uh, one of our leaders here at Common Ground collected uh, various statements, comments from other contemporary teachers about each of the 16 instructions from the Buddha. So they're organized according to each of the 16 instructions. So like tonight, we went through the first uh, like 10 instructions. So not even uh, just a little bit more than half of them. But you can see the first part is really about settling the mind and getting familiar with calm and with joy, that lightness of mind, and then ease, that relaxation of mind, not the relaxation of body, which comes it's really what that calm means. But the mind, the neurotic activity beginning to calm down because of the contentedness and the noticing of the mental activity itself calms the mind quite a bit. A mind unnoticed can be quite neurotic and all over the place. But when we start to notice it, it's like that neurotic activity it's like doesn't feel, feels a little ashamed. So the mind just gets quiet. It doesn't. It knows if it does something, worries about something, thinks about someone, then awareness, wisdom will be there knowing, oh, so that's what you're going to do? <laughs> you're going to wear that? <laughs> you're going to say that to yourself? No, no, it's not in a judging way. But it's, it's funny that presence, it's the same thing. If you had a perfectly loving, kind, and wise friend who was staying with you, and he or she was just sort of hanging out, well, your behavior would be different at home than if you were alone, right? That's just quite natural. We behave differently, even if it's, let alone a judging, critical person, but just a, a, a kind, wise presence there. Oh, yeah. Sort of their awareness, sort of like, we see it too. Oh, yeah. So we're internalizing this. You know, we're internalizing the Buddha or whatever image you'd like to use, you know, that wise, kind, vigilant, so not forgetful, not distracted presence. And this is really, this is a little off topic, but this is at the heart of karma. You know, we always think, well, how does that work? You know, we do something and then there's a result. Because when we do something, whatever it is, for good or for ill, when we do something, wisdom knows it. That wise, kind, clear presence knows. 
And so the mind going forward is the mind that knows that, yeah, I'm the one who did that. I'm the one who thought that, who worried about that, who planned that. And so whatever kind of impact that has in the heart, it's because the heart itself, the mind itself, is aware, is sensitive, not only to sort of gross activities, but the mind is sensitive to its own activity. You know, what the choices the mind itself makes, what it pays attention to, how it pays attention. Any questions about the meditation instructions before we move on? Yeah, Anne. I had a really surprise. When, we, when you said mental constructs, I, would have, I was imagining, I would think it was thought, but I actually felt as though the whole thing about my body was a complete construct. Like, the, just even the way, like I could, my eyes were open so I could sort of see, and I just, I just had, it just was so different and my feeling of where my body was and what my body was made out of and everything. Good to notice the constructions, like that they're just that, not to make them less than what they are, but certainly not to make them more than they are. Yeah, thanks, Anne. So we've been talking about the Four Noble Truths as a set of insights that we cultivate and If you've been around, you've heard that this is the first talk that the Buddha gave. So it's a central teaching model that the Buddha used. And it's not necessarily what he would lead with, but for people who had had enough sort of um, success in life, feeling grounded, feeling relatively safe in life, and still the heart agitated, the heart uneasy, then the Buddha would give teachings on renunciation, sort of a more full release or the full letting go. And they'd basically go by asking us to pay attention to experience, which we do anyway with mindfulness practice, but in particular to notice that whatever experience that is being known, to tune into the limited nature of that experience. So... It's not that we look just to the pain, but any experience. We could look to pleasant experience or painful experience or neutral experience. But what we do is when we tune into experience, a sight, a sound, a thought, a sensation, the over, the sort of most predominant quality, it's subtle, but defining quality is that it can't be grasped experience, whatever it is, isn't something that I can, in a very immediate, direct sense, own or have and bank on. It seems like that's what experience will deliver. But when we actually look at it in a non-conceptual, direct, immediate way, experience never does that. You know, even if you have a nice meal in front of you or 10 hours once you get home where you don't have to do anything and you can sleep and you can... It's your time, right? But however nice that time is, it can't be grasped. It's like it keeps moving, keeps disappearing. And on some level, even when we're not consciously aware, unconsciously the mind knows that it's not graspable, that it can't be owned, that it won't lead to a permanent happiness, whatever that good or whatever that difficult experience might be. 
So the Buddha, this is a training. We're literally training it, training the mind to notice that experience is limited. And that it's relevant, that the limited or the unsatisfactory nature of experience is actually not just interesting, it's liberating. It's a big, important teacher in our lives. And the more stable, the more steady, the more we're able to notice this about experience. So it's a real sobering up, uh, putting down of idealistic notions that, you know, if this happens in my life, we just, the mind, we just start to recognize, or wisdom starts to recognize more and more often that that whole idea that if only then I'll be happy, that that's a promise that's never really kept. You know, we've had that, that's, we've played that out so many times. So the mind's less fooled by it, and it's actually interested. Like, you got a great date or a great sort of event, and you're looking forward to it. You're going to go someplace warm. And to just go through that whole thing of the anticipation and then getting there and getting settled and in the middle and, and then packing up and going home. And, and then just to have that very wise and sober, non-judging, not negative, balanced awareness that what well, was just what it was. I'm not saying it was bad. But I'm also not saying that it was good in any sort of lasting or meaningful way. And one of the advantages of being, you know, having lived now a little longer, um, is we see, you know, looking back, we see all those like difficult times and good times. And, you know, so the next time we enter into a particularly difficult patch or easy, fun patch, it's like, well, been here, done this. It will be okay, it will be nice, there will be some high moments, and then it will change, and then it will go away, and then it will be something else. So this, we already, to some degree, because it's right here, I mean, it is our experience, this limited nature of experience, it's always been this way. We're not tuning into something and making it different than the way that it always has been. And, you know, like all those successes, before the success, when we really wanted that success, whatever it was, falling in love or getting a job or being recognized, it just felt like it was going to be so important. But then, a little bit after the fact, you see, it's like, no. Not that it was bad or wasn't great, but it doesn't really change anything. There's still the mind. There's still things coming and going. Some of those things are pleasant. Some of those things are unpleasant. So we notice that, and we talked about that earlier in December. Then we start paying attention when we have some stability, some soberness around experience and the limitations of experience. But it's not the same as being depressive or negative about experience. It's more about being sober or truthful. Experience is just what it is. Good experience is just what it is. Unpleasant experience is just what it is. Neutral, just what it is. Then that stability, that lack of idealism, or you know, sentimental, romantic notions, the lack of that then allows another more subtle insight to come into, come into view. Where more and more often we can actually see 
the birth of stress in the mind. Because the mind is less enchanted, you know, by the if only, this, if only I get rid of this, if only I get that. So because we're less enchanted by that, that idealistic tendency, the mind's more sober, and then it sees, like from that more balanced place, it sees how, you know, quite naturally a desire arises in the mind. Desires are not bad. Desires are just part of nature. Every living being has desires, including human beings. There's no way to be a human being without desire. And those desires are quite diverse. Some of them are built into the genetic code. Some of them are cultural, like we get culturally conditioned to have this desire or that desire. But regardless, they're there. And we can't get rid of them. And getting, wanting to get rid of desire, of course, is a desire. So, but we're there, now more sober, and we're aware of the desires. And at some point, a desire morphs into what feels like a personal problem. You know, we see somebody driving by in a really nice car. And there might be just a, a natural sort of sense, it's really nice to have a dependable car, you know. Or it's really nice to be seen as somebody who's cool because they got a cool car or a cool cell phone or a cool outfit or a cool house or whatever it might be, cool body, smart mind. So there's the initial desire, but then when the mind, in a sense, takes the bait and starts to construct, like we use that word in the guided instructions, mental formations or mental constructions, the mind literally... With that desire, it begins to construct a sense of a me who will be happier if I get this or happier if I get rid of this. So now we're, we're creating this alternate reality. You know, we normally think you need drugs to have an alternate reality, but most of the time our normal state is an alternative reality, one that we've constructed. We've constructed an idea involving this star, the starring character, me, right? And it usually, those stories are usually driven by greed or aversion, you know, the force of craving, craving to get, craving to get rid of. Once we take the bait and we're in that, then that's when desire becomes craving because now the mind has identified, it's taken what is natural, desire is natural, it's taken desire personally and it's constructed this alternative reality of a me who imagines he'll be happier if this happens or this goes away. And then because I'm not happy now, because I don't have what I want, then that means now is tight. Right? Because if I'm going to play my role in that alternative reality, happiness comes when I get rid of something or I get something which means I can't be happy now. So I'm a good actor, so I get tight now because that's what I'm supposed to be, tight until I get what I want or get rid of what I want. Then I can release, right? So this is what the mind actually sees. So now, of course, I've said it in terms, I'm telling a story about this, that when we're more sober about experience, then we can be more truthful. And in that more truthful, balanced place, we actually see this process happening 
moment by moment by moment, right here in the mind and heart. We see the natural desire there, some simple attraction. Boy, it'd be nice to eat some food. Or boy, it would be nice to go take a nap. Or it'd be nice to put a sweater on, I'm a little cold. You know, just a natural desire. And then, if there's not enough wisdom or if the force of habit is really strong, we see the construction of a somebody and the mental proliferation, the continuing to think and imagine. And then, right with that proliferation, the whole thinking process, the proliferation starts to get charged with emotion. Like, this is not good, but that, we sense that as being good because it won't have this tension. But we, the mind, just created that tension right now, right? So, like I mentioned, I think last week and the week before, there is a very real experience of gratification. When we get what we think we want, it feels good. But a lot of that feeling good is that we no longer, in a painful way, crave having it or wanting to get rid of it. So, as soon as you give me what I want, that part of the heart that really wants that relaxes. So I get rewarded. I feel good getting what I want. But it wasn't so much that getting it was good. It was the cessation of the craving momentarily that felt so good. Ah, I don't have to want this. You know, it's interesting when people get things they don't want. You know, it it can be, they have to sort of, first, it's confusing. I don't know if this has happened to you, but it's a little confusing when you get something you haven't been craving. And it's like, uh, you know, it's, and then like we'll whip up a whole bunch of craving, but it doesn't really make sense because we just got it. But it also doesn't make sense not to have that release because that's what we expect when we get something that's good. But because we weren't expecting it, there's no release of that craving. So, it's a little disorienting to be surprised by good things. And you'll see that, like if you do that with a child, you know, it's interesting, they're, they're whip up some tension so that they can put it down. And it, it sounds, it looks, it actually looks a little contrived when you watch children getting like a surprise that they weren't expecting. And so we can, uh, little by little, just start noticing that. And this is what the Buddha calls the second noble truth, the set of three insights. There is a birth, there is a cause for this experience of stress. It's that attachment or identification with craving, that proliferation. In Buddhism, sometimes we call this becoming, the becoming energy, where there's a feeling, like pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling, and then the mind because a habit personalizes it, oh, I want to get rid of this because it's unpleasant. Or I want to get this because it feels pleasant. And this whole process of identification and then doing something because of the identification, that's what we call from craving or from uh, wanting to grasping, like actually doing something, to becoming, becoming the one who will be happy if only. I get rid of or get. 
So that's the taking birth in that alternative reality. And so if you can catch yourself, you see there is an origin. It should be abandoned. Like the more we see that, the more we realize how unnecessary that whole trip is. Now, it's really important in that stage that we don't judge just because that whole trip, that alternative reality is itself weightful, it's heavy, it's stressful, but we don't want to hate it because then we're right back into craving, right? Craving is unpleasant. I want to get rid of craving. And there are a lot of Buddhists who think we got to hate craving, you know, and it's, so then we end up imitating non-craving, you know, we imitate being equanimous because we think not being equanimous but being reactive is bad. But the actual process is one of seeing clearly or understanding deeply. There is a cause. It's this confusion around a feeling. There's a pleasant feeling in our life or there's an unpleasant feeling in our life. And instead of just seeing unpleasant feeling is like this or pleasant feeling is like this, we begin to personalize it. It's a deep habit, so we have to be forgiving. We personalize it. The mind begins to proliferate. That thinking process gets charged, and that leads to this whole sense of becoming somebody who needs to get this or get rid of this. And that's experience of suffering or stressful or heavy. And that's with wisdom. Wisdom can see that's unnecessary. That whole thing should be abandoned. It's dysfunctional and not necessary. It should be abandoned. And this is where it takes a lot of patience. Wisdom, awareness, it's just hanging out, seeing this isn't helping. This isn't good. This is unskillful. It's like this now. It is like this and it's not helping. It's not skillful. And if we hang out there enough, then that whole alternative reality will cease because it's not being fed. See, what feeds that alternative reality? It's the misunderstanding of the feeling. You know, there's a pleasant feeling and we, the mind mistakenly thinks it's personal and I should personally react to that pleasant thought of getting something or that unpleasant thought of this thing in my life that I want to get rid of. But when we're really attuning to the unskillfulness of that whole pattern, then we're not confused by the feeling. That's what non-confusion with pleasant or unpleasant feeling looks like. We're seeing that sometimes it's like this. It's pleasant. Or sometimes it's like this. It's unpleasant. And then we see the whole ending of that. And we can do this, and we have done this. It may seem sort of like, oh, I don't even know what you're talking about. But we've all done this in times where there was a craving for something, to get rid of something, to get something. And for whatever reason, we didn't take the bait. Maybe just because it was so unrealistic. You know, you know, I want a 150-foot yacht. Well, it's not going to happen probably. And so any sort of leaning forward, any tendency to want to fantasize, I probably more likely can see it. Because it just, you know... We're not that stupid to sort of build up a lot of craving for something there's absolutely no chance to get. I mean, I shouldn't say that because we do that around the lottery, right? I mean, the odds are very low, but we 
imagine who in the room has never fantasized about what you would do if you won the lottery. Is there anybody in the room who's never done that? Honestly. Right? Never? So very few people have never... You should, it's so exciting. <laughs> I mean, what would you do with 420 million? <laughs> Some people are just naturally really wise. But, it, <laughs> but not all of us. <laughs> and for the, those of us who aren't, we have a set of teachings. Like, <laughs> to notice how unnecessary that is like to dwell let alone things that are somewhat probable you know that person might actually you know like me or maybe that person someday will understand me in a way that i want to be understood or you know maybe i will get my body into shape someday or change my diet or you know all these things that if only then my life would really work but if we can just, for the time being at least, we're not saying we're not going to do anything, but right now, just the most relevant thing is to notice the unskillfulness of the craving pattern itself. And just to keep tracking it in the same way that we track the breath coming in, track the breath going out, or track the whole experience of the body breathing in and breathing out. We're learning to track experience. Now we're tracking something more subtle and much, 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 much more seductive, which is this craving pattern. Seductive in the sense it's so easy to get absorbed into it, into that alternative reality, and forget to be aware of it. But when you can be aware of it, you'll see that it's there and then it ceases. So many times we've been lost in craving and so many times that whole bubble ceased. The trouble is we weren't mindfully aware in the moment it ceased. So we don't really believe when we do get into the next bubble, we don't believe it will cease unless I actually get what I think I need or get rid of what I think I need to get rid of. That's the spell, the enchantment of the craving pattern is we feel like that squeeze in our heart won't go away until I get what I think I want or get rid of what I think I need to get rid of. But the squeeze in the heart does go away. Naturally, as soon as that pattern ceases, and that pattern will cease as soon as the mind stops feeding it. See, craving is a moment-to-moment activity. It can't continue unless the mind, the activity of the mind is actively involved in the creation of that craving pattern. So as soon as the mind has something else to do, now here's the key, like notice the unskillfulness of the craving pattern, that's being mindfully, truthfully, wisely aware of what it actually is, then the supporting causes aren't there anymore. And so it's just a matter of time, depending on how much momentum that pattern has, and that whole craving pattern will cease. And because we many, many times during the day have little craving patterns, little and big craving patterns, we have thousands of opportunities every day to notice the birth of a craving pattern, to see it, to see it, 
and to see it cease without having to feed the monster, you know, actually get rid of what we think we need to get rid of or get what we think we need to get. Just as, you know, I mentioned this last week, I think, I mean, just one of the great things about sitting still for 30 minutes or 60 minutes a day in your meditation is you'll have lots of little desires to want to, or big desires to want to move and scratch an itch or just leave or, you know, do whatever. And so there's, you can see it. And then sometimes you catch the desire before it really turns into a craving pattern. But other times, it's by the time mindfulness, wisdom notices it, it's got a head of steam. You've been thinking about how much you can't stand this set, how much you better get to work on this or that, what a waste of time. And it's almost unbearable. But then wisdom can kick in. Okay, this is just that craving pattern. And part of our job, you know, the meditator's job of opening to that craving pattern is not believing what it says. So that's why we have to have a strong resolve like, when I say I'm going to sit for 30 minutes, I've already thought about it, and I know it's okay for me to sit for 30 minutes. No matter what happens, I can sit for 30 minutes. So, you know, we're going to stay there. So then when the craving pattern is screaming in the mind, no, we've got to eat breakfast, (laughs) I'm telling you, now, or... This is the time. I got to do this thing. I'm going to forget it if I don't do it right now. And then we we can sit there and we go, okay, this is a craving pattern. This isn't wisdom giving me wise instructions. This is just that natural thing where the mind thinks it's going to be happy in a meaningful way if only I do this now. So I'm going to observe this with wisdom. And with wisdom means I'm going to notice that it's weightful, it's stressful to be aware, to be noticing this pattern. This pattern is stressful. It feels like a burden. It should be abandoned. Not a, now I'm not judging it. It's just that's a clear recognition. In the same way, if you notice you were holding a hot pan, that same wise voice would say, this should be abandoned. This should be let go of. And it's the same thing when you see the mind involved in this so-called negative activity. This is not helpful. And we just keep observing that until it ceases because the mind isn't feeding it by by misunderstanding the feeling tone. So this is what the Buddha says, you know, um, I'll read the the quote because it's very potent. He's just describing his own process as a practitioner. He says, Oh, practitioners, I set out seeking the gratification in the world. Right? So as a young man, the Buddha thought, and he was had a very privileged existence. Okay, it's all mine. You know, I'm the prince. I'm going to get what I can in terms of the gratification, the sense gratifications of the world. And that's basically what we all do with whatever privilege we have, whatever affluence and um, access to pleasant experiences we have. We generally take them if we can, if we're not harming others. I set out seeking the gratification of the world. Whatever gratification there is in the world that I have found. Now, metaphorically, it's sort of nice, you know, as the story goes at least, that the Buddha was, came from a wealthy family. Because it makes, uh, like, it, it helps the story 
and even in our own life, to know like, okay, I've had some nice experiences, but it didn't change things. So is there a deeper kind of happiness? It kind of opens the door for the mind to look elsewhere when we know from our own experience or from our friend's experience or from all those celebrities who have a lot of money and are beautiful and loved and are really unhappy, right? It's like, okay, maybe that's not the way. Those things that I seek, maybe that's not the way. I wonder, what is the way? So then the Buddha says, after saying, whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found, I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far the gratification extends, right? Like, what can you get by lining up one pleasant experience after another? What does that lead to? And it's not bad, you know. I mean, assuming that we're wise about what actually is pleasant, but it's still limited, is what he's saying. So I set out seeking the drawbacks in the world, right? The drawbacks, the limitations of sense gratification. Whatever drawbacks there are in the world, that I have found. I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far the drawbacks in the world extend. So that means the Buddha sees that like when I really think that having one more car or a bigger car or more money in the bank, if I really think that would make me happy, I'm, I'm willing to start do, I'm willing to do things to get that one more thing. Cheat a little bit, steal a little, manipulate, like the world we have, where people oppress other people all the time because they think, if only I have just a little bit more, I'll be happy. So this is what the Buddha means by seeing the danger in gratification. Like, oh, not only is sense gratification a limited kind of happiness, but all the suffering or so much of the suffering in the world, the injustice, happens because people think sense gratification will lead to a lasting happiness. And then the Buddha goes on, I set out seeking release, freedom from the world, right? Release of this cycle or this pattern of craving. Freedom from the world, being in the world without craving. Whatever release there is from the world that I have found, I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far freedom from the world extends. So this is the same process we're in the middle of. To be honest, right, we're still seeking, like, how far can I get with sense gratifications, right? It's like, I'm in this kick of, like, making really good vegetarian noodle soups. Like, what noodles, rice noodles, wheat noodles mung bean noodles, you know, brown rice. Today we had brown rice, quinoa noodles, you know, and then like what vegetables to put in. Do we use, you know, fake meat or do we use tofu or chickpeas, you know, and what do, what sauces do I use to make the noodle soup? And and so I'm really exploring like how how much happiness, how real is the happiness you can get from noodle soup? And often what I find is I eat too much noodle soup. So it's like I actually step on my own toes. It's like I get a certain amount of gratification, contentment, but I'm not satisfied, so I take more. 
And not only am I no more satisfied, but now I, my body hurts, right? And my pants don't fit. <laughs> and this is just like one place of many places in our lives where we learn about this pattern. So then we start getting interested in the drawbacks of sense gratification. And this is that sobering up process, the first noble truth. There are limitations. There are real costs to pursuing this. And then this next stage is beginning to realize the release of the heart, freedom. So this is when we really, the mind absolutely clearly sees when craving ceases. And each time we, just in some little place where the heart puts down its grasping, its thought, if only, and realizes, I don't have to do that. Like, this is okay. So that's the realization of what in Buddhism sometimes we provocatively call emptiness, right? Emptiness is really referring to a heart or a mind empty of craving, free of craving, no craving there for a moment until it gets reborn, right? But that gives us a taste of that awakened experience. Like a Buddha or a fully awake person is somebody where that's the continuous experience, the mind without craving. And just as a kind of a thought experiment before I open it up for discussion, for because we'll come back to this third noble truth, which is talking about the cessation of craving. That's what nirvana or nibbana means, the technical definition of the awakened experience or freedom or nibbana, enlightenment, is any moment where the heart or mind is free of craving. It's not some mystical place where we get the key and then we get to enter. It's not like that conception of heaven where we get there. It's a place we awaken. It's right here. Any moment, uh, craving can cease. And if there's awareness, if there's clear awareness in that moment, the mind to some degree will realize the flavor of freedom. And to the degree the mind recognizes the flavor of freedom, it's unforgettable. Now, we've had craving ceases all the time. But that doesn't mean the mind is clearly aware in that moment when craving ceases, we're often distracted. And we go from craving ceasing to craving something else. Like we might unconsciously feel kind of good because we're not, the mind isn't wrapped up in some craving pattern. And then, and then with that good feeling, we go, well, maybe I should do something with this nice feeling. What could I do? Should I do this? Right? And we get right back into another craving pattern. Because when we feel good, what do we normally do when we feel good? We start desiring something. It's like, oh, the world's my playground. What should I do in it? And we start imagining things we could do in it. I'll call this person and I'll... There's got to be something fun to do. It's just in the same way when life feels hard or difficult, you know, we want to withdraw when life feels good. But both take us right back into a craving pattern. That's why we need to develop this momentum of mindfulness. Because it's the alternative. Seeing the limitations, seeing how the craving pattern is born and starting to experience moments where craving ceases and get that flavor of freedom, that light 
open, empty space of the heart. And you'll see that our engagement in the world is beautiful. It's not like we're a deer in headlights without craving. You know, this is what people imagine, like, how could anything get done in the world if there's no craving? Well, we need to experiment and see for ourselves directly that nature, see, desire doesn't cease. The Buddha didn't say desire ceases. That sort of activity of life doesn't cease. But now it's an activity coming from this holistic place, not from this neurotic bubble of a me who thinks it's going to be happy if only I get rid of or get something. So you could call it the activity of love. Love in the sense that it's an all-inclusive awareness, understanding. But you don't need to make it something otherworldly. It's best actually just to start in very ordinary ways to actually be happy when you catch yourself craving something. Because then you can rev up the mindfulness. Hey, my teacher has showed up craving. This is my teacher, right? Because craving is going, you can only see the cessation of craving by observing craving until it isn't there anymore. That's how you know that moment. So, given that, then for your homework, think about places where there tends to be a lot of craving. Maybe there's somebody at the office who you want that person's attention, want their admiration, or want their respect, or want them to whatever. So then, that could be part of your craving project, you know, your mindfulness craving project. So instead of just neurotically craving, now we have this other, okay, this is my curriculum. Here it is. Desire. You know, and it's like, is he looking at me? You know? Did, did she or he respond to my email? And he's, oh, oh, there's that craving. Okay, let me just feel it, right? Because it's, it's like this. The heart's squeezed. Just keep observing it in an honest, kind, patient way. It will cease without the mind or the you doing anything. It goes away. Okay, there was that, and then it ceased. So we can check in now, and it will be nice to check in the weeks ahead too about what you're learning. But we have 10 minutes before we need to end. Any comments from your practice, your own experience of cessation you'd like to share? Or questions? Yeah, say your name again, please. My name is Leanne. Leanne. I feel like I've noticed, especially in the last few months, that I, and I don't even know if there's going to be a question coming here, but I'm just going to talk it through, that when I notice this craving, especially with relationships with other people, um, I feel more able to notice it and able to get to the point of watching it dissipate without any action having to take place on my part. But then I feel, or what comes next is this, immense sort of appreciation for what feels like my ability to feel things so deeply. Mm-hmm. And then I become this grateful, blubbery mess. And I'm listening to you talk and wondering if that's another way of feeding the monster. Yeah. But it's it's tricky, so you have to appreciate it. Because when, and it sounds like in Leanne's description, it sounds like there's some real insights there where she's really seeing the craving pattern cease and like I said this is uh, uh, and I'm not exaggerating this is an earth shaking moment in the psyche right because it in little glimpses 
the mind is beginning to generalize what it's understanding and it sees that this is a game changer. And so a lot of energy rushes in, a lot of joy, a lot of inspirational energy naturally is there. And how does that feel? It's pleasant, right? And the cause of craving is always a misunderstanding of feeling. Pleasant or unpleasant, it doesn't matter. You can both trigger the craving pattern. So there's all this pleasantness. Now, if there isn't wisdom, they're understanding, oh, this is really pleasant. This is really pleasant. Well, can this be okay? So we're not used to a lot of pleasantness rushing in like that. So the mind gets confused. And then the craving pattern gets born. You know, I want, I'm the one who needs to do something with all this great energy. What can I do with all this great energy? If only I can, you know, express it. If only I can make it mine. Whatever, you know, you could tell us actually what your mind did with it. But what it could do with it, now that you kind of know the pattern, is after insight, there's often a lot of energy. And we have to be prepared to recognize there's a lot of energy. It's like this. It feels like this. It's really pleasant. It's really intense, intensely pleasant. Well, can that be okay? Do I need to construct, does the mind neurotically need to construct something or can it just be a lot of intense pleasure moving? Can that be just what it is? And it takes some time. Nobody can do this the first number of times because when things are new, they're always, we always have to make some mistakes before we sort of learn how to practice skillfully in new territory. Thanks so much for sharing that. It's great. Other thoughts? Yeah. Last week you mentioned a little bit about the physical, uh, that the, the body is left with some pain after maybe the body has had some awareness. Do you think you could elaborate on that a little bit in terms of like how that feedback would you talk about how like that could even trigger again the thoughts and the, the craving or aversion? Well, it sounds like, unless you understand it really well. And so the, the real hard thing, because the body's just slower than the mind, that neurotic bubble of craving, once it's seen clearly, generally ceases pretty quick, in the same way like I, I use that image of dropping a hot pan. But the, the charge in the body, you know, the momentum of being, of squeezing, that, that imprint in the body takes longer to dissipate. And then, so once the bubble has, so the mental activity of craving has ceased, but the body's still charged. And as soon as the mindfulness wavers, weakens, then ignorance is going to interpret that yucky feeling in the body as, I need something, or I need to get rid of something. And so we'll go right back to the pattern. So that, yeah. So we have to be, this is where I, it's so important to be vigilant. And while we're going to make mistakes, we're going to forget, 
and then the, the remaining charge in the body will trigger the pattern again, and after a few times, maybe we'll be motivated enough to stay with the yucky feeling in the body so that it doesn't confuse the mind. This is just that yucky feeling in the body, and it's going to last as long as it lasts, because it's just a matter of the momentum there. And it's not necessarily easy to, to sort of discern how much momentum that yucky feeling has. You know it ends when you don't feel it anymore. But until then, we have to be aware of it, because by not being aware of it, it will trigger the neurotic pattern again. So we have to stay with it. And that's the last thing we want to do. We want to be distracted. So much of our uh, sort of economy is built on distraction. And then as soon as the, the movie's over or the TV show's over and we start to feel what we feel, you know, we don't like it, so we look for another distraction. But with our practice, we're learning not to be afraid to settle in. This is why it's so useful to get the habit going of practicing every day. So at least one time every day, as best we can, we're sitting in that undefended way, you know, in a relaxed way, right in the middle of our life, no matter how it is. It never makes sense to be disconnected from our lived experience. And so the formal sitting practice is a conscious way to acknowledge that I'm willing to be right in the middle of this life and not run. And so then that formal practice makes it easier to hang in there when we pop a craving pattern, but the body is still charged, just to hang in there with it. And maybe we need to sort of find a quieter space, you know, whatever it might be, including even silly things like, oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And you stay there for five minutes so you can have a little less distraction as you just stay with the subtle charge that's still there in the body until it really finishes. And then you're a little bit safer. The Buddha had a really potent image for this sort of thing that when there is this charge that's been set up, you know, and so it's in the body, then we have to be very vigilant. And he used the image of a cow herder during the season when the crops are almost ready to be harvested and somebody, a cow herder, is bringing their herd of cows through the fields on the little narrow path, that person has to be very vigilant to keep the cows on that narrow path. Otherwise, the farmers are going to be upset and he'll be thrown in prison or something. But later, when the crops are all harvested, the farmers actually don't mind the cows tramping through the fields. They want them to poop here and there because it's fertilizer. So then the cow herder can just sort of sit back and just generally know the cows are in the area, but doesn't have to be neurotically, you know, don't go there, don't go there. And it's the same thing. When our body is really relaxed and doesn't, hasn't been triggered, fear hasn't been triggered and other sort of patterns haven't been triggered, then we can be a little bit more relaxed in terms of the vigilance. But when a lot of defensiveness has been triggered or a lot of lust has been triggered or a lot of fear, a lot of greed has been triggered, then we want the wisdom in the mind to be right there because it has to be tracking the unpleasantness that's been triggered or the unpleasantness will trigger a mental pattern, a reactive pattern that will bring in more contraction in the body and mind.
That's the samsara. That's the cyclical part. It keeps feeding itself. And because we now know that, we're willing to be more vigilant. Because it's hard once we've built up a lot of stress, it's hard not to keep feeding it by running from the stress, the yucky feeling of it, or just judging ourselves for being all bound up. It's like when we're really bound up, the mind's disoriented. So every move that seems reasonable just feeds the stress. And we see this in our, we can't see it in ourselves so well, but we can see it in our friends. You know, when our friends are really messed up and then we see what they're inclined to do and we're going, don't do that. That's why it is helpful to have a wise friend who will just tell you, just need to stay put for a while. You need to relax for a while. You need to just feel what you're feeling. And good friends would say, well, how are you feeling? Well, can that be okay? You know, you've been through this before and you made it out the other end. I bet you can be with this too. I know it, I know it isn't easy. Where do you feel it? Can that be okay? Can that feel, you know, really helping you to get close, to stay with it. And so we can internalize that good Dharma friend and be there for ourselves in that way. Thanks, Ellis, for bringing that up. And it's 8.30, we need to leave it here. So just take a few seconds to take a breath or two together. Taking a moment to appreciate this possibility of being right in the middle of our lives, but with real freedom, love, great skillfulness. So may this be so for all of us. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.